Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 5, since it's been several weeks. I want to go back and read these scriptures, and then we're going to move on, just to remind us what we're talking about. Jesus, in this, in this uh, sermon, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, and I used to have this picture that Jesus has these multitudes around him that he's preaching to, but if you read the context, that's not what it is at all. The end of chapter 4, there's been a multitude around him, and he's healed all the sick that were in that multitude. And then he took his staff, and he withdrew up onto the mountain to get away from the crowds, and then he began to teach his staff. And basically what this is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is teaching them the constitution of the kingdom of God. These are the principles on which the kingdom of God operates. This is the nature of God, the heart of God, and this is what we're called to. And so what we're reading is a part of that. Down we're going to look in Matthew 5. We're going to look in verse 13. We're talking about this within the context of being succeeding, not just surviving in difficult times, because I hope you realize we're living in difficult times. Um, and, and they're not likely to get better. They're likely to get worse. But God's already prov- always provided for His church. We're here not just to survive, we're here for, with a purpose. And in order to carry out our purpose, we have to be able not just to survive, but to accomplish His purpose in spite of the times that we're in. We're here because of the times that we're in. God has put you and me, He's chosen you and me to live at this particular time, and He's chosen this church and many others at this particular time with a calling and a mission and a purpose because of the times we're in. Because God cares about the rest of the people that aren't in the family of God right now, that are out in that world of darkness, out in that world of fear, out in that world of hopelessness. He cares for them, and He wants to reach them and bring them into the kingdom, and we're here to be partners with Him in that process. But if our knees are shaking together, and we're barely surviving, we're not going to be in a position to carry out that purpose. So it starts by understanding we're not, God's goal for the church is not survival. God's goal for the church is to overcome. In the book of Revelation, it says, to, he, to him who overcomes, not to him who survives. Survival is good. It's better than failing. But to him who overcomes. That's why the Bible says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So that's his goal for us. But how do we do that? How do we do that? And one of the keys to that that we've seen is what the church tends to think, at least I believe in the time that you and I live in, we have in, in the, the American church, the real church that's in America, we've not understood this principle that we're looking at, and as a result, we've been lulled into this, fault, this deception that we are to kind of blend in to the world, and, and under, we've learned that our flesh likes that because we want to be accepted. But that's not what our purpose is. So Matthew 5.13, Jesus tells us what our purpose is. He says, talking to his disciples, but it's true to us too, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And what we looked at is salt has a purpose. One of its purpose is to affect the taste of the food to either enhance its taste or to whet your appetite for more. You understand that the reason that they put salt on pretzels, salt on potato chips, salt on all the snack food is so that you'll won't, so that your appetite will not be quenched, not be satisfied. You'll just want more. Not only you want to buy more of the potato chips, now you've got to be, eat, drink more of the sweet soda to get rid of the salty taste, and now you've got to have the salty taste to get rid of the sweet taste. It's a cycle that's been set up to make money off of you and me. 
And that one of the ingredients of that is the nature of saltiness is it whets your appetite for more. But what Jesus is saying here is that saltiness works because it has a different taste than the chip itself. That saltiness works because it has a different taste than the meat you put it on. What makes the salt work is it tastes differently than the food it's on. It doesn't blend in. And Jesus said if it blends in, it's lost its purpose. And then he says to us, we are that to the world. We are salt to the world, which means we are supposed to taste different. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to talk different. We're supposed to walk different. We're supposed to live different in the world, not blend in. If we blend in, we've lost our saltiness, and for His purposes, we've lost our value. doesn't mean He doesn't love us, but we've lost our value as the church in this time for what we're called here to do. And the concern I've had is the church doesn't understand this, then the goal we set is to be like the world, to dress like the world, to, to do, you know, to, to wear stuff that the world wears, you know, and, just, and I'm not getting on people's case, you know, this, I see so many Christians, especially young ones, adopting the practices of the world to be like the world, and, and, they, and they can justify it in some cases, but the, the, you know, the, the bottom line is, are you affecting people or are they affecting you? Are you changing your world or is your world changing you? Because we're here to have an effect on the world that we're around, and part of that effectiveness is by being different. Then we looked at what, what... So we're talking about living a separated life. We looked at what it wasn't. It doesn't mean a segregated life, which is where you live up on a mountain in a monastery somewhere. You withdraw from the world so that you can't, do not let the world affect you. But the problem is when you draw with, withdraw from the world so that the world doesn't affect you, neither do you affect the world. Salt that's left in the salt cellar on the shelf doesn't change the taste of the food. So if you hide your saltiness on the top of a mountain in a monastery or withdrawn from the world or all you ever do is spend your time with Christians and in church, that's like a monastery. Well, the world's scary out there. Yeah, that's what we're to be in. That's not comfortable. That's taking your saltiness and hiding it on a shelf. And so then it loses its taste eventually if it sits on the shelf too long. All right, that was popular. <laughs> the other thing it's not is being weird. Being separated from the world does not mean being weird. What Jesus said we are to be in the world but not of the world. So that's what we looked at. Then we've looked at some obstacles, the, the challenges that are kind of in, inherent in our humanness that the, the enemy wants to use to inhibit or to restrict your saltiness, your being different. And the first we looked at is the love of the world. And we saw that, that the Bible says that, that we are not to love the world nor the things of the world. doesn't mean you can't enjoy them, you can't love them. It's an issue of the heart. What's your heart given to? And we looked at all of that. We're not going to go back over that. The second obstacle we looked at is the fear of man. The Bible says that in, in, uh, in Proverbs 29, 25, that's a snare. And we spend some time looking at the fear of man and why the fear of man is so tempting because we all want to be accepted. We all want to be, we all want to have value. We all want to be, we all want to blend in and yet we're called to not blend in. So where do we get that from? Where do we get that acceptance from? Where do we get, we get it from our relationship with God. 
And we talked about the fact that unless you've built your security in your relationship with God, somewhere under pressure, you're likely to give in. Because there's some inadequacy, there's some sense of inadequacy in you that the enemy will eventually play on and try to get a hold of. doesn't mean you can't overcome it. But if you recognize that weakness ahead of time, you can begin to work on it. And I shared some of my testimony on that. Then we talked about... Um, so the fear of, of, the, of, of man is the next thing. And then the last thing we were talking about is that the way to overcome that, the Bible teaches, is the fear of God. Fearing God more than you fear man. And we talked about the, what the fear of God is. There's two aspects of the fear of God. We saw that in Acts 9, it talks about the fear of God. There's the, there's the, the, the love of God, the compassion of God, and the fear of God. And, and the compassion of God we saw in Romans 8, where Paul talks about what, that, that we, when we walk through the end of Romans 8 and what God has done for us, and, and that, that there's no fear in that because God is taking care of us. God loves you. God's your safety net out there. So we don't, have to be, we don't need man to accept us because God loves us. Us and God accepts us. I mean, some, some, some of the most powerful verses in Romans chapter 8 are near the end, and I've been meditating on these lately because I've known them for years, but where Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, whether I live or whether I die, whether I'm dealing with angels or principalities or powers, which is demons, whether I'm dealing with things present or whatever's going to happen, whether I deal with things at the top of the mountain where everything's great or the bottom of the valley where everything's low or any created thing, he said, I'm persuaded by experience that whatever happens to me, I'm okay. Why? Because nothing can separate me from the love of God that's been given to me in Christ Jesus. So Paul's security was not in whether he lived or died. His security was not in the physical life of this body. His security was not in the spiritual realm of, the, well, I've got angels working on my behalf, or I've got the devils opposing me. Whatever happened to him, he learned the secret of being self-sufficient. That's what it means in Philippians 4. And his self-sufficiency was, was, God loves me. And when that dawns on you, the Bible says it casts out fear. So your security needs to be based on that. All right. Tonight we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the key to living a successful, separated life, life separated from the world. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Actually, chapter 10. We're going to sneak up on chapter 11. Now this, as you've heard me teach before, this is written to Jewish believers who were spread primarily throughout Asia Minor as a result of a terrible persecution in the first century. The devil thought that the best way to destroy the church was to persecute it, and he learned a hard lesson. I'm not sure he's learned it yet. And that's that when you persecute the church, it's like trying to put a, a gasoline fire out by pouring water on it. All you do is spread it. Because when you persecute the church, you force us to go back to why we believe what we believe. When the church is persecuted, then it's very clear we're not, the world doesn't like us anymore. So they're not going to accept you. So you better just suck it up and realize everything comes from God. It's not going to get it from the world. And so that's what these Hebrew believers were, were into. They, but, but because they were separated from the mother church, there was pressure on them to kind of blend in in a different way. And what was happening is there were there were religious teachers coming into them 
called Judaizers trying to teach them that to be a true Christian, a Jew that's a Christian now, you've got to still practice the law as well as believe in Christ. And of course, that's compromising at its roots the gospel, especially the gospel as revealed to Paul. So this, the believers had been persecuted, and that's important to understand as we pick, as we pick this up in chapter 10. He's been correcting them by saying, look, if you go back and start operating under the law, then you're basically falling from grace. So in verse 26, he says, if we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, he's talking about going back under the law, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation that will devour the adversaries. We talked before about the fear of God has two aspects to it. It's the comfort of God, the fact that he's there, a reverence for God, but it's also ultimate. Look, if I really ultimately walk away, there is, a, there is, a, there is an end to the, this period of grace. We talked about this period of grace we're in is a parenthesis. There was a time before, and there will be a time after. And the Bible does talk about this, and he's, here the writer of Hebrews is addressing this. It's not something to be afraid of, but it's knowing ultimately that if I stick my finger in that light socket, bad things are going to happen. So that keeps me from sticking my finger. I don't want to stick my finger in the light socket anyway, but if I were ever tempted to, the knowledge of that keeps me from doing it. And that's what that aspect of the fear of the Lord is like. Some people respond better to that. My mother used to have this expression. Some of you kids, there's five boys. Some of you, are, some of you have to feel it <laughs> instead of hearing it. And she had ways that we would feel it. So I decided early on, I'd rather hear than feel. I had one brother in particular, he was convinced that feeling was better than hearing. <clears throat> and he had a rough time. All right, and such were some of you. <laughs> but a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. Anyone talks about who's rejected the law of Moses? Let's move down. Um, verse 31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now he's going to call them back to them. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, after you came to the truth, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly by way, while, while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, partly while you were being companions of those who were mistreated. He's reminding them of the suffering that they've been through, the persecution that they've been through for being Christians. He said, you had your goods taken away from you. And, and look at how you handled that. Not only that, you were companions or helpers to others who had their goods taken away from you, from them. For you had compassion, verse 34, on me and in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Look at this. Knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. What he's reminding them, what brought you through that persecution was there's something you know. We're talking about the strength to live in this world as a Christian for Christ and to be willing to be His representative in a world that may not like Him and therefore you. Our flesh doesn't like that, but that's what we're called to do and to be willing to do. And He's reminding them, because they were getting shaky, He was reminding them of what they've come through. And he says, the reason you did this is you were able to do this is that you, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. You may have lost 
you, they may have taken your iPhone away from you, and you may have lost your dish network or your internet connection, and you may not have the latest whatever, and you may have lost the things... You know, you know it's interesting when we have a power failure? You learn a lot about yourself. I wasn't happy with some of the things I learned about myself. A year or so ago, we lost... Now, I know in the blizzard we lost it, but we weren't here for that. We were, I won't tell you where we were, but we weren't suffering. <laughs> But before that, we had a storm in the fall, I think it was, and we lost our power for two days. And I couldn't believe how irritated I was getting. <laughs> to have to use candles at night. And it was, it was, we were warm. It wasn't like we had you know, no heat. And I was amazing how worn out, I, how it was wearing on me, and how my patience was getting strained. And it made me take an honest look at myself. And Do you need all those conveniences that much? that you can lose your peace over the TV's not running, you don't have an internet connection, and all the other so-called necessities of life. What happens is we get our heart invested in those things, and then if they're threatened now, what our heart's invested in has been threatened. And he's saying, don't you remember when you lost all those things, you got your values right, straightened out. And you realize that although you may have lost those possessions, you have something, a possession that is much more valuable that's waiting for you in heaven. And that's true for all of us. But notice what he goes on to say. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. Therefore, don't cast away your confidence because it has a great reward. A great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. What we're going to look at tonight is the way you come through challenging times, the way you're willing to live a separated life and, and give up whatever that requires is to keep your eyes on the prize, to keep your eyes on the promise, to keep your eyes on the reward, to keep your eyes on what Paul kept his eyes on. Do you ever think you're having a bad day? Read some of what Paul went through. And he was a person like you and me. There were times he struggled. Read the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. He got to the point that he despaired even of his life. But God brought him through that. And throughout all of that, no matter what he went through, it didn't stop him from finishing his course. That's the point. He had ups and downs. He had good days. He had bad days. He had days when things were... That was when he was on the top. He had days when he was down in the valley. But none of it changed what he did. The church of the United States is too much moved by our feelings and by our emotions. And the problem is that's a trap for us. And so we've got to begin to look at these things now. And, and Paul, whoever wrote uh, uh, Hebrews, is helping them, he's correcting them by bringing them back, showing this is how you got through it before. And you joyfully accepted it because you realized that there was a prize waiting for you that was infinitely more valuable than what you lost here. But how do we do that? Don't cast away your confidence. It has a great reward. You have need of endurance. That means we may not get out of it right away. I don't like the word endurance. I like the word quick fix. I like the word... Take this pill for two days and it'll go away. I like this pill. You know, this, this, you know, put, the, put the money in the machine and you'll get it back. You've all heard my story about getting impatient you know, at a fast food restaurant because it's taking more than 50, you know, 10 minutes to get a meal. 
and realizing, my goodness, John, what are you doing here? It's a fast food place. And if it's not immediate, my idea of fast is immediate. I want what I want now. And the problem is we bring that over into spiritual things. And I see words like endurance. I see words like patience. I see words like that that I just don't like. But they're in there and we have to learn to do them. In fact, the Apostle Paul, this is one of the signs of spiritual maturity. Romans chapter 5, he talks about, he just talks about Romans 4 having come through that we're saved by, by faith and that faith allows us to receive the grace that's been given to us in Christ. And he says not only that it was Abraham justified by that faith, but all of us who believed are justified by that faith. Chapter 5 starts out by saying, Therefore we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and we stand in this grace and we glory in the grace and the, and the, the, of God that we stand in. But then he goes, I'll be wonderfully stopped there. He says, we also glory in tribulation. When was the last time you gloried in tribulation? We glory in tribulation, but he tells you why, knowing this. He doesn't just tell you to do it. He says there's a reason, there's a perspective, there's a view that I've learned to have on it that's God's view that if you have this, you'll really truly value the tough times that you go through. Why? He tells you what? Knowing this, that tribulation produces patience or steadfastness. Now, it doesn't automatically produce it, or, or I know a whole lot of Christians that be steadfast. It's what you do with the tribulation. It's what you do in the tribulation that produces steadfastness. If you feign and panic, it's like having the, uh, the, 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 um, the treadmill in your basement and the weights in your basement. Having them in your basement doesn't do a bit of good. It's only when you get on them or you pick the weights up. It's when you exert effort against them, that's when they do you good. That's the same way with tribulation. It's when you begin to apply your faith against it. It's when you begin to stand and trust in God, that's when we grow. God doesn't cause these things to help us to grow, but He'll use the opportunity. Now, if you just exercised your faith without the problems, you wouldn't need to go through that stuff. In fact, you may not go through it. All right. So... But this is the same thing James talks about. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. John, Paul goes on to say, and that patience, if you exercise that, will produce proven character. And that proven character, if you continue in that, will produce hope. The word hope means a steadfast expectation of what God's going to do. And that's the way Paul lived. So the challenges in Paul's life, he says, bring them on. Because every time you bring them on, I get stronger. That's got to frustrate the devil. That's got to frustrate the devil. All right. So that's what he's talking about here. You have need of endurance so that when you do the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And if anyone draws back, God says, my soul takes no pleasure in him. But you, he says to these Hebrews, you're not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. So what he's going to talk about here, this whole chapter 11, which we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, it's the, it's the chapter that has all these examples of faith in there. He's using them to teach them the way that you go through these difficult times, the way that you maintain your saltiness, 
when everything, even if you lose everything, even if you're persecuted for your faith, what keeps you steadfast is where your eyes are set what you're looking at. If you're looking at the things of this world, if you're depending on the things of this world, if you're looking at the approval of man, you're depending on the approval of man, and those things are threatened or taken away from you, your foundation will be taken out from underneath you, and you will fall, you will weaken, you will lose your saltiness. But if you begin to build your foundation in the kingdom of God, a kingdom you can't see with your senses, if you begin to build your confidence in the God and His Word, then that is a sure and solid foundation. Just what Jesus said in John, in Matthew chapter 7. He said, if, if, if you... For, he says, there's, there's, there's two construction companies here. They both use the same materials. They both use the same design. One of them builds their house. They both build a house. A storm comes, one, which represents the storms of life. One storm com, one comes against the house and it falls. The other exact same design, exact same contractor, exact same materials, and it stands. The only difference is in the materials or the contractor. The difference was the foundation. One of them built it on sand. That's the one that fell. The other built it on a rock. That's the one that stood. And he says, those two houses represent your life. What are you building your life on? He said, if you hear my words and do them, then you're like the man that built his life on the solid foundation. But if you're just a hearer of my words and then you don't apply them in, in your life, then you've built a house, but the foundation is sand, and when the storm comes, it's the foundation that determines how well the house will stand. And so that's the same principle. So we're being called back. I know God's working in my life, calling me back to my faith and challenging where my faith has been and where my faith needs to get to. So that's what he begins to talk about. He says the just... Notice he doesn't say the just are saved by faith. We know that's true. But it's not just we're saved by faith. We're to live by faith. Live by faith. Well, then he gets, of course, into a discussion of what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. In the course of this, we probably get into what that means. But I want to go down to some examples that are in here. Let's go down to... Um, well, let's just... Well, let's go read down. Um, let's go to um, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible... Without faith, it's impossible. Without faith, it's impossible... Without faith, it doesn't say it's hard. Without faith, it's impossible. That word in Greek is the strongest possible negative. That means there's no way it can happen. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder to those who diligently seek Him. Actually, in the Greek, what it says, He becomes a rewarder to those who seek Him out. So as you seek Him out, He becomes that rewarder to you. Now look at verse 7. He's, we're going to begin to look at some examples. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, that's what we're talking about, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, we all know the story of Noah. 
God spoke to Noah at a time when it had never rained. At that time, the earth was watered by a dew that settled down on the earth, and it watered everything, but the heavens had never opened up, and it had rained. And God speaks to this man and tells him to build this gigantic boat because it's going to rain. God didn't speak to Noah's wife. As far as we know, he didn't speak to Noah's children. He only spoke to Noah. Now, Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance, the word substance means tangibility. I know that this phone is real because I can touch it. Just did something. (laughs) I know this phone is real because I can touch it. I know something happened because it just vibrated. I must have turned something off here, my timer here. Okay, we don't want that. So I don't need faith to believe I have a phone because it's tangible to me. I know it exists there because my senses confirm it. And as we've learned before, anything that exists in the material realm, you can confirm its existence by one or more of your five senses. You can either touch it, see it, taste it, hear it, or smell it. Right, all five of them. That tells you that it's really there. So when you know, when you feel it's there, ah, yeah, I've got, I, I remembered my phone. Oh, yeah, I, got, I did remember my wallet. Okay, so I feel I can rest now. I can be at peace. I've got my wallet with me because I can feel it there. My touching that wallet gives me assurance and confidence that I have my wallet. It is the evidence of things not seen. What is evidence? Well, I'm an ex-lawyer. Evidence is what you use to prove a fact in a court when you can't see the fact itself. So when you're trying to prove who, who ran the, the stoplight and hit somebody... The jury wasn't there. The judge wasn't there. So you have people present evidence that are designed to prove something you can't see. That evidence can be the form of verbal evidence, which is testimony, or it can be the form of tangible evidence, physical evidence, which is the knife or the gun or whatever it is. But what the evidence does is the evidence has the purpose of trying to tell you that there's a fact that's true you haven't seen. You've all watched Perry Mason or things like that on TV, so you understand, you know, that's kind of basically what that's about. Both of those are talking about giving you confidence and assurance that something's true, and the way you have confidence and assurance of it is you can either touch it or you have evidence that points to it. The problem comes when you're dealing with things that are real that are in the other realm, which is the spirit realm, because in that realm, by definition, you cannot detect that, sen- that realm by any one of more of your five senses. So you can't see into that realm unless God does something supernaturally. But in the normal course of events, you can't... Like this room's full of angels right now. Because the Bible says we all each have at least one. Some of us need more than one. Some of you have really tested them. But unless something supernatural occurs... 
you can't see them. So we, uh, the only way we believe they're here is because God's Word says so and we choose to believe that. So when it comes to dealing with things in God's realm, our senses are not... Uh, we can't rely on our senses to verify that it really does exist. So we need a substitute to give us that same confidence as if we could reach out and touch it. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith provides that service. Faith gives you the assurance inside of you that what God says is true is true when you can't touch it with your hands or see it with your eyes. And here's the problem. What we try to do is we take something God has promised us in that realm and verify it. We try to verify that it's real by using our senses and it's impossible for that to work. That's what faith is for. All right, we have that, that, that basic background. Now let's come to Noah. Let's apply this to Noah. God spoke to Noah and said, build an ark because I'm going to open the heavens up and pour rain out. Noah's never seen rain. When God speaks to him, undoubtedly the sun's out, it's dry, it's never rained before. His senses cannot verify to him that this is about to happen. It's not as if, you know, he's been watching the Weather Channel and he sees that the 10-day forecast or the, you know, the 60-day meteorological prediction says, the boy, within 60 days, we're going to have a deluge coming, and he gets busy. He doesn't have any of that. In fact, it's interesting. We have more faith in that, the word of the meteorologist, than we often do God's word, but we won't go there right now. So God speaks to him, says it's going to rain And as a result of that rain, you need to build a boat so that when it rains, you and your family are safe. Noah has a choice to make. He can either rely on his senses to tell him, yeah, right, I think it was the pizza I had last night. Or he can choose to believe what God said in spite of what his senses are telling him. Noah, of course, chose to believe what God said. Now, it's not enough to believe it. You've got to then go act on it. If Noah believed what God said but never acted on it, he and his family would have drowned along with everybody else. Somewhere, he believed that God had spoken to him enough that he began to act on it. Now, we can only imagine what Noah went through. I know Bill Cosby years ago did his famous routine about Noah and the ark and the people coming around laughing at crazy old Noah. But that had to happen. So we're t- now we're t- remember what we're talking about? We're talking about being salt to the earth, being willing to be different. So here's Noah. Nobody else around him is building a boat. Nobody else around him has ever heard of rain or knows what rain is. And they begin to gather around Noah while he's building this thing. I mean, even his, I don't know what his wife went through. You, you heard what? You're going to build a what? Why? It's going to what? And he he had to convince them to come along with him. So whatever the person... The point is, he had to stand out and be different. Right. 
than his neighbors. And the strength to do that was he believed what God said over what everybody else was saying and everybody else was doing. He had more confidence in in God, what God was able to do, and more confidence in God's Word than he had in the acceptance and approval of all the people around him. And that's what it means when it says that Noah being divinely warned, that's God's Word, of things not yet seen. He couldn't confirm it with his senses. So he needs something else to give him that confidence, something else to give him that assurance that his senses would have been able to give him if it hadn't been something God said. And what stood in that place was faith. His faith was a, gave him the same confidence that it was true that he would have had if he could have actually seen ahead and seen the rain coming. Because if he could have seen the rain coming, then he would have known, I don't care what they say, I've already seen that rain coming. But he hadn't seen it. It was things he hadn't seen. All he had was God's Word on it. And he trusted God's Word to the point. And that's what it says, what it means when it says here, moved with godly fear. That means he respected God's Word enough to trust God's Word over what his senses told him, what his neighbors told him, and what probably his own family told him. But look at the result of it. Prepared an ark for the saving of his household. You have no idea what may be at stake by your learning to be steadfast in the midst of difficult times. The Bible tells it it's a threat to your enemies. When your enemies see you not shaken by their threats, it threatens them. It's a witness. It's a witness to the world that the God you believe in is real. Because there are just some situations, some of you even now are going through, that don't make sense that you're still standing that don't make sense that you haven't caved in and cursed God and died, that don't make sense that you haven't given up. And there are people watching you to see whether you stand or you don't stand. You don't know who you're affecting. You've no idea who you're affecting. Prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, so he became... He became a standard to the world because he stood. He stood for what God said. He stood for righteousness. And he became a standard to the world that convicted them. Of righteousness, which is according to faith. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive his inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. There's some of you not knowing where you're going, but it's a different reason. <laughs> Abraham lived in a, ta- in a city called Ur, which was in what's now our modern-day Babylon. It was Babylon, it was now our modern-day Iraq. And they worshipped the moon. And as you've heard me say over and over again, undoubtedly Abraham never heard the moon talk to him. And one day, we don't know how it happens, but God speaks to him and God tells him, you're to take you and your family and you're to go somewhere and I'll tell you when you get there. Now imagine 
going back to Sarah. Say, guess what happened today? What? God spoke to me. And she's looking at the moon. And she's looking at her husband. Yeah, right. What have you been drinking? Where have you been on the way home from work? And he's got to convince her to follow him. Actually, some of his other relatives went along with him. They go up into Haran, and then God brings them down into what is now the promised land, the Palestine. He had to do that by faith. Why? Because God didn't show him ahead of time why to do this. God didn't show him ahead of time what that promised land was going to look like. God didn't show him the blessing of that land. God just said, I want you to leave where you are and go somewhere where I'm going to tell you it is. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises as, look at this, as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. Let's look at that for a second. We're not going to get done tonight anyway. You knew that. Look at what it says. I want you to learn to read your Bible and notice little things because everything in it is important. Went out when he was called to go out to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't have to have any assurance, any brochures, pictures, look on the internet. He just went because God said go. And then by faith, when he got there, he dwelt in the land of promise as if he were living in a foreign country. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. We talked a few minutes ago about Matthew 7, where Jesus talked about the foundation for your house. He said, if you build your house on sand and a storm comes, it's going to fall. If you build your house on a rock, it's going to stand. And the difference between is whether you do what he said or you just hear what he said. So the foundation implies a permanent house, doesn't it? So if you're going to build a permanent house, the first thing you do, Rick, isn't that right? You pour a foundation or a permanent building. You pour a foundation because that's what it's going to settle on. But a tent doesn't have a foundation, does it? In fact, a tent by its very nature is not a permanent building in a permanent location. I never saw that until a few months ago. I was reading through here. And when I saw the rest of this verse, the fact that he lived in tents was to signify that he recognized that this was not his permanent home. Because a tent is a temporary dwelling. A tent is a temporary dwelling. And look at what he says. For he waited for a city which has foundations. He looked at this life as a tent without a solid foundation. Because he was looking forward to a city that has a foundation. It is solid. It is eternal. It is secure. Whose builder and maker is God. His attitude towards his life, his attitude towards his possessions, his attitude towards everything is, it's just temporary. I'm just living in this tent. In fact, keep your finger here, or something here, and let's go over, I was going to get there 
we'll probably end up going back there again. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is, where, this is the next place we're going to go, but I want to jump ahead. Paul's talking about the same thing. I'm in 1 Corinthians. That's why we're talking about a different subject there. He's talking about the same thing here. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. He's talking about his body. That thing we worry about, that thing we're so anxious about, that thing we spend so much time and money on, that thing that's so critical and essential to us, from God's perspective, it's a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. Its only purpose is to give you a temporary dwelling place while you, on your temporary journey here. Because you understand that your 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years here is in eternity. I can tell you that my 68 years has gone poof. Look back at 46 and a half years of marriage and where did it go? It's like it just seems like yesterday we were just settling down and starting a household and having children and now our children have had children and now those children are growing up. It's like, where does it go? Why? Because time goes faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And when I was younger, before I was saved, I used to try to hold on to it. And it was because you, but you can't. And I remember coming to the end of us, I still remember vividly, standing by our bed, night, Sunday night after Sunday night, it was kind of the benchmark for me because it was going to start a new work week. And I realized another week of my life just went. I can't ever get it back. And I, get, I began to get scared. I mean, I was only in my 20s. But it was already dawning me how I couldn't hold on to my life. Well, I had no other alternative at that point because I didn't have the life of Christ in me. And the moment I got saved, all that fear went away because I had a different perspective. And so Paul saying here, he said, I, 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 the perspective I had is this body is just my earthly tent. Because when I leave this, I put on a permanent abode. And Abraham had that same perspective. We'll look more at, at Paul's, what Paul says about that uh, probably next time. So let's just finish this idea on Abraham here. For he waited for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah, when she also received strength to conceive seed, she bore a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. In both Abraham and Sarah's case, God made a promise to them, and they eventually chose to believe that promise over what their body told them. Their body said, no way, you're not having a child. I mean, for two reasons. They were both too old, and Sarah had been barren all the way along. So there were three strikes against them. She's barren to begin with, and they're both too old. And yet God said, through her, you're going to have a son and be the father of many nations. And of course, you know the story. They tried to help God out by having Ishmael with, a, with, with Sarah's servant, Agar, and God says, no, no, we're not cheating on this. No shortcuts here. It's going to be simply... You believe my promise. That child will be a child that's a result of you simply taking me at my word and believing my promise, and I will produce a child where you couldn't produce anything. And God wants us to know that lesson. 
God wants us to know in our lives that there are things that only He can produce in us. There are things that only He can do in us so that we stop trying to do His part. Our part is to believe Him. That's what Abraham and Sarah's job was to do. Their part was to believe Him. God's part was to do it. I'm going to share it, Danny. Last night I shared here with, the, with the, the, the prayer group here last night, one of the things God has been showing me, and we'll get into this probably, Mark 11, 23 and 24, 24 God's key to prayer, prayer of faith for you is He said, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And what I've learned is, is there's two roles there. Just like last week, Pastor Ray talked about there's God's role in sanctification and there's our role in sanctification. There's our role in receiving from God and there's God's role. And if you don't know the difference, you'll try to do God's role and you can't and He won't do your role. Our role is the first part of that verse which says that when you pray, believe that you received what you asked. When, do I, when did I receive it? When I asked. Why? Because I, God's Word is so certain that when God promises something and I ask Him for it, I can count it as done. God counts it as done because 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says that, that we, this is the confidence that we have before God that if we ask anything that's within the bounds of His will, He hears us. The next verse tells us about God's character. And we know that if He hears us, we have what we requested. So the reason Mark 11.24 works is because if we ask anything that's within the boundaries of His will, well, how do I know what's in the boundaries of His will? Here it is. Here's the will. If it's within the boundaries of this, He hears you. If He hears you, then from God's side, you have it. So we're to, when we ask Him, we're to believe that it's mine already because God's promised me that if you ask me, I'll give it to you. Another thing God spoke to me about, He says, why would I tell you to ask for something if I don't intend to give it to you? I never thought of that before. Why would I... And over and over again He tells us to ask. Why would I tell you to come and ask if I haven't already decided to give it. That would be tricking you. And Jesus says God won't do that. He says, if you being evil fathers, your child asks you for a loaf of bread, you're not going to trick him and give him a stone. If he asks you for a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to those who ask him? So our role in prayer for ourselves or other types of prayer is to believe God at His Word to the point that I believe that it's mine now simply because I asked Him. And the confidence that I have that it's mine is not because I can see it, touch it, feel it, or put my hands on it. The confidence that I have it's mine is the faith in Him. His part then is, and then you shall have it. What we're so often trying to do is believing for it and then make it come about. That's his job. The shall have is his part. Once you've asked him and you believe it's yours, your job's over. Now you wait. 
You keep looking at his promise. You keep thanking him that he's doing what he's done, what you said you're going to do. It's his job to make it happen. And the reason why it doesn't happen more often is because we're trying to make it happen after we've asked, which means we don't believe he's going to do it. I did get it in. <laughs> we're going to have to pick up here next time. But there's so much in here, and the point of this, all this study we're doing is this. The ultimate purpose for faith is not simply so that we can receive things from God. It is to do that. You received your salvation by faith. You received the baptism of the Holy Spirit by faith. We receive whatever God has promised us. Now, there's times He just does things. But most of the time, it's received by faith because you can't see it to receive it. You have to believe it's yours before you'll put your hands around it and accept it. But the ultimate purpose of faith is so that we can learn to live in this natural material world, in this natural physical body, with our confidence not on this natural material world, but our confidence for our future, our confidence of our security, our confidence that we're loved and accepted, our confidence for all the inheritance that's promised us, our absolute confidence that they're ours now, we can be that confident because we do receive it by faith and not because we can reach out and touch those things. And when we're settled in that, nothing can move you. Nothing can move you. And my concern is that the church is far from that. God began to show me my life was far from it. And I've begun to go back and to build my faith up and to begin to exercise my faith and strengthen my faith because, my brothers and sisters, I believe there's going to come a time when that's going to be all we have. But when we have faith, then we have our access to the source of everything we can possibly need. Protection, provision, courage, all that we need is, is there, but it, we walk in it and have confidence in it only by faith in the God who's promised it to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in this world alone, that you've not left us and called us in this world without your provision, your ability your grace, your sufficiency. But Lord, we realize from your word tonight that there's a part we have to play. There's a perspective that we must have on this life. And we realize that we've been too easily seduced, too easily drawn in to the, to the provision that the world offers us, to the love and acceptance and security that the world offers us. And with that goes a dependence upon the world and not upon you. Awaken us, Lord, to where we are. Awaken us to where we are and show us, challenge us, encourage us, and strengthen us to begin to build our lives again on the foundation of your word and of your word alone, that we may be prepared for what is to come, not just to survive, but to be the salt in this earth, to be light in the world that's becoming ever darker to represent you and to be your ambassador in a foreign land. And for the grace to do that, we thank you. In Jesus' name.